Welcome to the Senior Story Hour, where we share poems, stories, observations of life, written by the Franklin Senior Center Writers Group. Hello again. This is the Franklin Senior Center Story Hour, about to record in our session for airing in February. So we'll have a few opportunities for whether it's Groundhog Day or President's Day or Valentine's Day or anything else that just comes to mind. Any one of those faux halfway holidays that February <laughs> seems to own. Even a leap day is in this particular Yeah, a leap family. year. Yes. That's right. Now's your time, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> I saw you can take a, the leap. I saw a, um, on Facebook, I saw... Mrs. Groundhog, Mrs. Phil Groundhog, and ex-wife Mrs. Phil Groundhog, and she says, "Don't believe a word that Phil says." Funny, <laughs> <laughs> Phil. I forgot about that. I thought I second, Valentine's yeah. Day and all that, but well, let's do a round of introductions so the folks will recognize the name and the voice as we come around with our reading. And here is Steve Sherlock. Today. And I'm Faith Flaherty. And I'm Bill Wiley. And I'm Susan Elliott. Here comes the judge, Alice. I'm Pete Fasciano. And we shall start. We'll dig right in. Faith, you got something ready for us. Yes. This is called the Valentine Bandit. Tomorrow will be Valentine's Day, and Spidey just had to break into her apartment and steal back the TV she was holding. I should say keeping from him. She used to be Spidey's main squeeze but their romance went down south. Spidey owed her money, and he couldn't pay her back, and she wouldn't give him back his TV until he paid up. Spidey was good at climbing into windows. He had a rep for walking up buildings like Spider-Man. Since tomorrow was Valentine's Day, Spidey planned to steal back the TV and leave a Valentine card. He planned to sign it, guess who? He planned to hit at night. She worked as a night nurse, so she wouldn't be home. She'd come home Valentine's Day to see no TV and the Valentine's Day card. He dressed all in black, including black water shoes, because they have a good grip for climbing, and a black ski mask. He waited in the parking lot for her to leave. In fact, he waited half an hour longer. The entire building was quiet. Spidey went around the back, and with a running jump, he leaped up to the fire escape. He missed. He tried again and again, and he got it. Pulling himself up with all his upper body strength and putting his elbows on the fire escape is how he got over. He leaned his chest against the edge of it. He braced his hands on the edge, hoisted up one knee, then the other. Finally, he made it. This was excruciatingly slow because he was being quiet, but there was still no movement inside the apartment he was aiming for. Up two more fire escapes, and there was a ladder that led to each one. Spidey climbed up tenuously and quietly, and don't forget quietly. Shh, here's the one. Spidey managed to push up the screen. He took out his knife and jammed the lock on the window. It went up. Good. He didn't have to break the window. So far, so good. Lucky. Once inside, he looked around. He even felt safe enough to put the light on. Everything looked just like the last time he was in this kitchen. He went to the cookie jar and helped himself. 
he went to the bathroom. Then he went into the TV room. He put on the lamp. He looked around. He didn't see the TV in the entertainment center. Instead, there was a large cardboard. Spidey went over and took a look. It was a card. It read, no money, no TV, happy Valentine's Day, guess who? Mm. <laughs> Great story. Thank you. Do you have other sp Spidey stories? Or is this your first? This is the only. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's due for a sequel. You do, huh? Yeah, he's a bandit. That's a name for people that climb up walls and steal things. Mm -hmm. I was imagining a spider. Oh, Spidey. Yeah, that's a nickname. And Bill, you've got something for us? Yeah, I do. I got a couple of them. This one is called uh, My Gift from God. My Gift from God. That's what you become. You bring the light from the shining sun. If ever I lost you, my future would be lost. I don't want to face that kind of cost. You have touched my heart with a special love. No other in this world will rise above. For you are the top of my highest desires. Oh, my darling, you set me on fire. This beautiful lady from so far away, I want you here forever to stay. My feelings for you are strong for you, my babe. My future, my darling, you have saved. My gift from God, my love is true. For if you run away, my heart goes too. I'll say good night. My special one will be together with the rising sun. Very nice. That's mm. one of your that's, best. That's one of them. That's uh, a little weepy there. Yeah. This it one. Feels romantic. And this one, I may sing at the end of it. Oh, you've warned us. I call, <laughs> I call it more today than yesterday. The first thing in the morning when I open my eyes, it is you that I see, but no surprise. It's you that I think about. Every second of the day, I want you here beside me and take me away. To start a new life with you by my side, I know, my love, that my arms are open wide. To wrap them around you and squeeze you tight, you are such a beauty, a lovely sight. I feel this attraction to you, my sweet lady. I have never felt such passion for anyone before, every second that passes, I will love you more. I love you more today than yesterday, but not as much as tomorrow. I know that we will have no sorrow. Good night, my love, pleasant dreams, and sweet tight, my love. May tomorrow be sunny and bright and bring you closer to me. Our love will last along and the world will see. I wrote a couple lines at the end. I didn't, I didn't sing the last line, but <laughs> I should have. Well, Bill, I'll confess to the fact that you have better pitch than me. <laughs> yes. And I'm, I'm not a singer. That doesn't say much. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, wow. Oh, boy. She's always there with a zing, you know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I did that good or should I do it again. I don't know. <laughs> well, I just happened to be here. I stepped in, and they've convinced me to read something. Nice. Um, so I grew up in the town in which we are in right now, physically, in Franklin, Massachusetts. And 
So my story is very different than what I heard so far. But about 10 years ago, I wanted to do, I was working at a local college, Dean College, and would audit history classes. Although at that point, I didn't have deep connection with studying history. But so I was Googling Franklin, colonial, and I came up with a bill of sale for a man named Caesar, who was sold by the Franklin Selectmen to someone in Lancaster. And I thought, oh, my God. I didn't know until then that there had been slavery in my hometown in the colonial period and somewhat beyond. And so um, took quite an interest in it. And if, for a while, every day, I would just find one little thing. And then I started a Facebook page about it. And most recently, I wrote something called Busy as a Green Nailer, um, which is about a, um, a couple of men, ens who, enslaved black men, who had lived in Medfield down the road. And uh, recently, the African-American Historical Genealogical Society published this story. So I'm about to read it. Mm. So Busy as a Green Nailer. But can you forge a nail, the bland boy asked. The blonde boy asks, and the blacksmith shoves a length of iron rod deep in the coal fire cherished by the bellows until it glows volcanic by A.E. Stallings. When they came back from the service in the Revolutionary War, you might have found Warwick Green and Newport Green in their own nailer shop along the Dedham Road in Medfield, Massachusetts, just south of the eastern end of today's Vine Lake Cemetery. They had finally been paid for their six months of service at West Point, two years after the fact, in 1782, a likely source for at least part of their financing. Now let's take a moment to step back in time and watch Warwick at work. With iron bars fresh from the slitting mills, mills a few days earlier, Warwick Green of Medfield grabs the unheated end of the nearly white glowing rod now malleable, from the fire and places it on his anvil. He soon works its end to a thin point and forms a shoulder on it to define the length of the nail, followed by a partial cutting by pounding it on his chisel and breaking it off with his header tool. He grabs his hammer and bears down on the top, creating the telltale rosebud-like nail head. Now, believe it or not, both Warwick and Newport would have likely made one about every 30 seconds, typical for the times, thus the largely forgotten expression, busy as a nailer. Their services were in high demand as exemplified by the Boston Gazette Medfield help ad placed in the fall of 1775. Medfield, October 3rd, 1775, wanted immediately two or three nailers that understand that branch of business. Such persons may have present employ by applying to Jesse Pratiff of Medfield. The nails that the two men produced were precious items in Medfield and elsewhere, before, during, and after the revolution. It is speculated by some that derelict houses were set on fire at one time or another to recover the nails. A century later, when nails were much less expensive due to advances in manufacturing, Laura Ingalls Wilder 
wrote of their continued value in, their, in her novel, Little House on the Prairie, based on her own childhood experiences. Now Pa carefully took the nails and with ringing blows of the hammer, he drove them into the slab. Every now and then a nail sprang away from the tough oak when the hammer hit it. And if Pa was not holding it firmly, it went sailing through the air. Then Mary and Laura searched in the grass till they found it. Sometimes it was bent. Then Pa carefully pounded it straight again. It would never do to lose a nail. Newport likely learned this trade from his owner, Moses Hartshorn, a, a midfield blacksmith before the war. It is not known when or how he gained his freedom. We do know that another enslaved man in town, Peter Warren, had to buy his freedom in 1769 from his owner, Medway's Joseph Lovell. Warwick and Newport were freed at some time before the end of the Revolutionary War, evidenced by the receipt of pay directly for the military service at West Point. Years later, when Newport sold his nail shop, he sold his inventory along with it, which included bellows, two hammers, and one stake. His colleague Warwick ended up moving to the neighboring town of Dover along with his family, but he is purported to have produced the nails used to build the first parish Unitarian in Medfield, a church built in 1789 that's still standing in the center of town. And somewhere in the archives of the Medfield Historical Society lie nails that he had crafted to be rediscovered by a new generation. In other words, they're not quite sure where they are. <laughs> Newport and Warwick were advanced in age when in 1813 a nail factory was built along the Mill Brook south of Main Street. The Industrial Revolution would lead to the total mechanization of their former trade in the years to come. According to President John Adams in a letter to the founder of the Massachusetts Historical Society, the real reason for the end of slavery in Massachusetts the multiplication of laboring white people who would no longer suffer the rich to employ these sable rivals so much to their injury. In other words, white men could not compete with the free labor of the enslaved, especially with so many men returning after the revolution. So in a real sense, the two men would have had two strikes against them. Mechanization of the industry and the color of their skin. What work or profession could Newport and Warwick have found in the first half of the 19th century? Hmm. If you would like to pay your respects to all three men, Warwick, Newport, as well as Peter, head over to pa Baxter Park at the intersection of Routes 109 and 27, where you will see their names listed on the Revolutionary War Memorial. Ironically, the park is named after an enslaver Reverend Joseph Baxter, the town's second minister. And that is a subject for another day. Thank mm. you. Wow, so much insight. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, how often do we travel one Fascinating. In 27, I can't picture a park. Oh, okay, it's across from Starbucks because the minister owned where Starbucks is and the park is across the street. And I've gone by it all my life because yes. as a little kid, I lived in Medfield. Yeah. 
And I didn't remember it. I had to kind of look for it, but it's small. But it's right at the intersection. There's like a CVS, yeah. Starbucks. I can't oh, where the, on the other Moon corner. Cafe is? I think that's the further Blue Moon. down. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Well, I have to say, Susan, for our first story from you, I think you nailed it. <laughs> Sorry. And you really well. Oh, thank you. Yes. That was yeah. kind of fun. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's it's somebody's job to go for the obvious ones. That's what I do. <laughs> so you got one for us? Yeah, today? I do. Well, it's all helps a skelter here. Um, but I'll try to make sense of it. Ah, February is upon us. That means there's only two more months of winter to contend with. You can tell I'm not a winter person. I don't like the cold, freezing temperatures we've been having. I prefer lighter clothing to heavy boots and coats. I must admit the snow is pretty when you look out your window and see it falling on the trees. But then if you want to go anywhere, you have to get out and sh shovel your car up. Then there's black ice to worry about. I became familiar with black ice as I toppled to the pavement a bit too many times during my lifetime. Now, let's see. So, people like um, Steve has said Groundhog Day, I never thought of that. But Valentine's Day and uh, children's vacations, a lot of people go to a warmer climate during their kids' February school vacation. Valentine's Day, a day for lovers with beautiful flowers sent to your gal or guy, or boxes of chocolate. Hint, hint, remember that. My daughter-in-law works in the floral industry, so Valentine's Day means more of a paycheck. Monday, I heard a weatherman on the Today Show say there are only seven weeks of winter. Love. It certainly does not feel just seven weeks. Uh, it feels like more. But I do remember the April 1st storm several years back. Boy, that really threw everyone in a tizzy because the amount of snow was terrific. But alas, the next day the sun came out, the temperature was up, and it was amazing to watch the snow appeared to disintegrate in front of my eyes. In my younger days, I did ski, never ice skated, but as a kid, slid down many a hill, but never really enjoyed the layers of clothing, the boots that eventually got snow in them, and the gloves that never really kept dry. So let's talk about shoveling snow again. One day I went out and saw my car. This was when I lived in my condo. And uh, there was a system uh, there when there was snow. Somebody would notice a snowplow was coming in. Then they'd go down and zap everybody with their bell. So he hated to hear that uh, bell. So one day I went out and saw my car completely covered by snow. You couldn't tell if my car was there. It was going to be a long day of shoveling. Then I saw a teenager helping his parents shovel themselves out. I grabbed his attention. Now, this is years ago, so I said to him, I'll give you $20 if you help me shovel my car out. Finishing up with his parents, he didn't seem like he was interested. 
His father was, though. His son earning some money on his own, that sounded good to the father. The teen complained that his hands were cold. I had my hands in my jacket pocket, and guess what? I had no idea they were there. They must have been left from the last storm. I pulled them out. Hey, I said, I have just a thing. And I gave the teen the hand warmers I found in my pocket. I don't think he was too thrilled. The find did save me a lot of work. The teen was tall, strong, and although he wasn't that happy, he did a great job. And I did help him. And my next-door neighbor, who saw what happened, asked me to help her. Uh, help, uh, asked him to help her that day. I can truly say I never saw him again after that storm. <laughs> Snow plowing somehow just doesn't appeal to kids, and, and certainly not nowadays. But I can remember when it snowed when I was a girl. My brother, three years older, made out like a bandit. He would go to each house on, on the block and shovel their driveway coming home with over $100 uh, in his pocket. So let's sum up my thoughts on my feelings on winter. I'm going to wait impatiently, maybe, for the first sign of spring, the crocus, which unfortunately doesn't last long because there's usually some hints of winter still among it. Too bad they can't wait a little longer to come out. And then my favorite, the hyacinth, comes along with its marvelous sense. So I have a couple of things. Uh, first of all, we must address the, the most immediate holiday, which is upon us right now as we record this, of course, Groundhog Day. Groundhog Day, yes. And I am going with the New England prognostication. Well, the winter weather word hath come down from on high. That is, high atop Gobbler's Notch in Punxsutawney, PA, where Phil rules the roost, or whatever it is that groundhogs live in, nest, burrow, den, beachfront penthouse with ocean view. Phil says six more weeks of UG. Phil has a huge fan base, but for our New England forecast, it makes sense to go with a New England groundhog. We New Englanders are big on weather, and it makes sense to seek a local prognostication for Groundhog Day. Miss G is our local weather rodent at Drumlin <laughs> Farms in Lincoln, Massachusetts. She is ushered into an outdoor enclosure with a bit of ceremony to visit with groups of school children. Miss G is easygoing, really enjoys the ceremony. A little attention, a few cameras on her official day. If she gets nervous and crawls into a burrow, perhaps because she saw her shadow, humans will interpret that as her forecast for the six more weeks of snow. But if she enjoys the weather, the kitties, munches on fresh veggies, it's an early spring, as she predicts locally for this year. I say yes. Groundhog Day in the United States began in the 1700s, when German settlers in what is now Pennsylvania brought the tradition of Candlemas Day, halfway between the winter solstice and the spring equinox. And in Europe, they would look to badgers for the sign of spring. Mm. Here in America, there weren't a lot of badgers, but we had woodchucks, otherwise known as groundhogs. Close enough. 
(laughs) (laughs) Woodchuck, groundhog. How much wood would a woodchuck chuck if a woodchuck could chuck Chuck wood? wood. Or (laughs) how much ground would a groundhog hog if a groundhog could hog ground? (laughs) Or how much snow would a groundhog throw if a groundhog could throw snow? (laughs) But would the woodchuck chuck or throw the snow? I don't think we'll ever know. (laughs) (laughs) Clever. That was great. (laughs) Good old woodchucker. Just another random musing of my out-of-control brain. (laughs) (laughs) That's very good. You said you had two? You want to do the next yes. one? Or you... uh, well, I'm going to do a little commentary um, on my favorite president, so a little acknowledgement of President's Day. Mm. Um, oh, okay. Are we ready for this? Oops. I'm, seeing, I'm seeing looks of fear and fear. <laughs> I know. We don't want to. <laughs> I don't know which way, way this is going to go. go. It kind of speaks volumes to the current electoral cycle, doesn't it? Did you see yes. Brian last night on GBH? <laughs> I'm 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 going to past presidents. Oh, yeah, good. Yeah, oh, okay, that's the safest way. I like the historical and I, view. I I invite, indeed, welcome, encourage you all to embrace my favorite president, David Rice Atchison. Atchison. <laughs> now all of the looks of fear have just changed over to cognitive dissonance. <laughs> didn't say president of what yet, did you? <clears throat> David Rice Atchison was, technically speaking, president for one day. Oh. Oh. What happened was a presidential term, I'm going to shorten that part up, a presidential term ended on a Sunday. The following president, Zachary Taylor, didn't want to be sworn in until Monday. Since Atchison was the next in succession after the president and vice president, who both had vacated their offices, he was technically automatically the president of the United States, or someone would have had to declare an interregnum, no government. Therefore, David Rice Atchison enjoyed his presidency for 24 hours on a Sunday. Did he get a government pension What I like about this is the fact that he chose to do absolutely nothing. (laughs) (laughs) God bless him. (laughs) Meaning that he to this day, still has an unblemished record. <laughs> and I, I did a little bit of third-grade mathematics uh, because every single president has, obviously, their four-year term, which turns out to be, you know, 365 days times four plus a leap day, whatever. You add all that up, and you get around 1440. And... When you look at all the presidents that we've had, you end up getting approximately one second of time to celebrate every single president's day. If you were to celebrate the days of each president, all of them. So given that we line up all of these presidents' days to celebrate them, David Rice Atchison's president's day happens to land somewhere around 516 in the morning. (laughs) So I beseech you all. I'm beseeching here. See me beseeching. I am beseeching you all to get up at 516 in the morning, gather in the village square or whatever, and precisely at that moment, for one second, scream the name Atchison, (laughs) and then go about your business. Possibly back to bed. (laughs) 
who was the president and the vice president who uh, resigned? On Friday, March the 2nd, outgoing Vice President George M. Dallas vacated his position as the Senate president. And that's how Acheson became the next in succession. Also, too, the previous president had also basically flown the coop to go on vacation. Who knows where he went? Uh, (laughs) And what was the time, uh, date of this? Per the Presidential Succession Act of 1792, the Senate Mm -hmm. president pro tempore followed the vice president in the presidential line of succession. Dallas's term also ended on the 4th, as neither Taylor nor vice president-elect Millard Fillmore would be sworn into office until the next day. Hmm. So it was noted that Acheson's colleagues that on 3-4-1849, Acheson became the official acting president of the United States, POTUS by default, mm-hmm. without the need for a swearing-in ceremony. Wow. Interesting. The government does work. You learn exciting things here. Yes. Well, you know, also I've, I've opted to provide the entire funding for the Atchison Presidential Library, <laughs> <laughs> which basically consists of a honey-do list from his wife <laughs> <laughs> to go to the store and buy a few items. <laughs> so it's, I've, I've got that little piece of paper in a shoebox, which is mm-hmm. the official yeah. library. Right, yeah. That's the right way right. to do it. Right. <laughs> okay. I'll do a piece that I've titled Advice from the Curbside. And a little backstory. We had talked in an earlier episode about our next project being kind of memories, reminiscences of when we mm-hmm. were growing up, things that have potentially changed or just we did it that way back upon a time. So the second part of this has individual items, which themselves will become kind of the stories for this new piece. So roundabout, this is how I'm getting there. Advice from the curbside. The Christmas tree carefully took time to put up, to decorate, and far less time to remove all the ornaments, strings of lights, and put the tree on the curb. Did you know middle-aged honeybees work from the top down secreting wax from their abdomens to build the combs of the hive. Yes, they don't need the curb. The youthful bees fly all over to collect the pollen to make honey. They have the energy for that. Smarts comes with time staying above the curb. Real estate appraisers take the measures of each room and walls inside and out to make their assessment of the residence's appeal from the curb. The peregrine moonshot will run out of fuel before it can power its landing on the moon. The team will maximize testing opportunities as it flies well out of sight of the curb. Recognition of two circles overlapping, mingling in ways I would uncover from the breadcrumbs of the table of their conversation while sitting there on the old stone curb. Part 2. Be prepared for whatever life throws at you, whether dressing for the changing weather or patiently waiting your turn. Applaud their effort when you stand on the curb. Follow curiosity where it can take you. Willingly explore with the eyes of a three-year-old. Flop to make a snow angel and step back to check it out from the curb. 
Be helpful and leave a rake in its proper place. Definitely avoid stepping on the tines to try and pick it up. It can quickly leave you down and out on the curb. Balance is what you do when walking along the edge of a narrow surface. Prioritize is what you do to accomplish goals so you won't be left behind on the curb. Mind the words you say, but don't be afraid to say what you mean, to add value, to help someone, to share the lessons you acquired walking along the curb. Ben Franklin advocated religiously for work. Folks remember, industry need not wish. And should know he really continued that sentence with, and he who lives upon hope will die fasting upon the curb. So Sherlock, continue your work, taking the measure of the times, building from the top down and bottom up, sharing the content and context with the folks along the curb. Interesting. So we got a few items in there, some of which connected. I was thinking of the tines, almost thinking of the nails, because (laughs) it was steel and they were sharp, et cetera. There's a separate essay coming on the Ben Franklin piece, because... As people see the town seal, industry need not wish, is really the quote, four words of a full sentence. The rest of the sentence, nobody really knows. (laughs) And yet it makes a whole lot of sense because industry need not wish. And he who lives upon hope will die fasting. Stepping back into those days in Ben's time, there was no such thing as industry in terms of big manufacturing that we know today. That's right. Industry in his time meant hard work. That's right. Mm. Making nails. (laughs) When was uh, Samuel Slater and when did he come to uh, from England? He he is credited with early in the 1800s. Oh, okay. Yeah, because that that was the Industrial Revolution piece. That was. After Ben's day. Ben certainly contributed to the Industrial Revolution, Mm. but the industry piece, yeah. Hadn't come yet. There's a wonderful new museum in uh, Webster, Massachusetts. Samuel Slater Experience. Oh, okay. We've had an opportunity to be there, and I do encourage folks to go because as one who grew up in Pawtucket, within a stone's throw of the Slater Museum, it was like, wait a minute, he actually built more than one Slater mill? And yeah, when you go there, you find out he did, what, 12 or 15 mills around the different towns? He was Mm -hmm. a millionaire back in those days. I did not know that growing up as a child in Pawtucket. Right. I'd been through Webster, and it just is kind of a depressed, uh, maybe a lot of poverty. Mm -hmm. So it's really nice to know that the person that owns the Indian ranch, he's the founder of it. He's the finance. I mean, I don't know where he got the financing from, but he was the... The person behind the Samuel Slater experience. And although it isn't in a former mill, it is on land that Samuel Slater owned. Right. And they used a little bit of, it seems like, Disney technology in some of the exhibits. Quite a bit of high tech. Right, right. Yes. Yeah. It was quite fascinating to go there. Learned a lot. Definitely want to go back. Definitely Mm. want to go back. So as we come to a close with our session today, for those listeners, thank you for listening. And if you do want to join us as a writer... And we hope you do. And we hope you do. We do have that capability. You can join us at the Franklin Senior Center if you're physically in the, phys- in the arena of Franklin, Mass. Or 
join us via Zoom, and you can join the mailing list. Contact the Senior Center, and we'll keep you on the mailing list. And then you can just tap in from wherever you are located. And if you join us, we promise we'll behave for minutes at a time. (laughs) Yes, I can attest to that. This is my first time here, and so far they've been well behaved. (laughs) Although there's still time left. The program's not over yet. (laughs) There's an endorsement. We'll have to put that as a PSA We're for one of our We're putting on our polite face, you know, <laughs> for newcomers. We do hope you come back, though, because we really enjoyed that story. Thank you very oh, much. Thank you. I, I plan on it, yeah. And in March, we'll have spring potentially to look forward to. How about that? We'll be able to march forth. Let it be thus. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you all again today. And we'll close with a round. I'm Bill Wiley. And I'm Faith Flaherty. I'm Susan Elliott. Alice Judge. Pete Fasciano. And Steve Sherlock. Thanks for being with us here on Senior Story Hour. Until the next time, I'm Peter Jay. Remember, be they laced with gravity, levity, wisdom, or whimsy, the meaning, experiences of life become a little larger when you share them, when you take a moment to commit pen to paper and just write. This is FPR, Franklin Public Radio.